As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. He said to me, quote, if there is one Hamas guy without legs and without a right arm, but with his left hand makes a victory sign, we lost. There's a very unusual manger. There's basically a pile of bricks and stone, which looks like rubble from any of the buildings that have been destroyed in Gaza. And there's a doll of baby Jesus wrapped in a Palestinian flag. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines, Israel-Gaza. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of the people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> People telling me that you know mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Breton Gordon. Calling in from a reporting trip in Bethlehem in the West Bank, Natalia brings us up to date with the news from the Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip and talks about her time exploring the birthplace of Jesus, where this year, in the light of the suffering caused by the war, Christmas has been cancelled. Sophia takes us through her analysis on the chances of political survival for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And, more than a month on from the start of Israeli ground operations in Gaza, Hamish de Breton Gordon shares his thoughts on the tactics and effectiveness of the IDF. It's Friday, the 15th of December. On Thursday, I called Natalia Vasilyeva, who was on the road in the West Bank. She was visiting Bethlehem to see how the place where Jesus Christ was born is preparing for Christmas. Hi, David, and hi, everyone. Bethlehem is still the same. You know, it stands like it did 2,000 years ago. But there is nothing, absolutely nothing to remind you of Christmas time. Now that we're, what, 10 days ahead of Christmas, there's no Christmas tree. Typically, it's a big event here in Bethlehem. There's a tree lighting ceremony on Advent Sunday. And celebrations have been cancelled. Christmas is officially cancelled in Bethlehem. Why is that? What's the reason? It's a decision that was taken Initially, it was an idea proposed by different churches and priests uh, and was taken up by um, the municipality. 
which you know runs some of the celebrations, Christmas tree, Christmas fair. Everyone we've met here told me that they're not in the mood to celebrate when their neighbors in Gaza are going through a punishing blockade and daily fighting. What's what's more, a lot of local Christians, Bethlehem, there are a lot of Christians here. They have relatives there, and people just don't feel how they can be, you know, full of joy at the time like this. Have you been in any of the churches? Uh, what's the atmosphere like in there? Yeah, so we, we've been to two churches so far. One is a less known place. It's a Lutheran church built in the 19th century by German pilgrims. Beautiful German stained glass windows from the 19th century. But the most striking thing that you will find if you walk uh, inside next to the altar where you would typically have a manger this year, there is a manger, there's a very unusual manger. There's basically a pile of bricks and stone, which looks like rubble from any of the buildings that have been destroyed in Gaza. And there's a doll of baby Jesus wrapped in a Palestinian flag lying on the rubble of Gaza. And, and, and the priest there told us that it feels, it feels the only way to make Christmas relevance because he thinks about all of the children being killed in Gaza and his thoughts are prayers with them with the idea that if there is a child underneath the rubble in Gaza, he would very much like to hope that Jesus is looking on them and Jesus is with them. So you went to a German Lutheran church. What was the other one? Yeah, the other one was the Nativity Church, which is best known, which is on every postcard that that people buy and post from, from this town. Obviously, the oldest church in Bethlehem, also supposed to be the oldest church in the world. And uh, it's typically packed with visitors. There would be a line, if not to get in because it's fairly large, there would be a line to get downstairs to the original manger and, and the place where Jesus is supposed to have been born. We saw in the space of 40 minutes we spent there, we saw maybe 10 or 20 locals who came in to talk to the priests, to to pray, but um, by and large, it's absolutely absolutely empty, devoid of any decoration. There are no decorations of any kind. It was a decision by the church. Again, like you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think there's Christmas going on. And obviously, everyone everyone we spoke to and at uh, churches say that they are going to go ahead with services. Mm. You know, Christmas service, no one is canceling them. But in terms of joyous celebrations, they don't feel like doing. And what's more, they, they're saying that we don't think that the parishioners would want us to do it. Let's zoom out from Bethlehem then. Natalia, what do you think are the major updates, the major stories from the last week? Yeah, there's been a lot of going on. Obviously, the ground operation in, in Gaza is continuing with, I would say, the new force and ferocity. I think what we've seen in the last week is that the anticipated advance of Israeli troops onto the south has somewhat got bogged down in the area. What we also saw was the fact that the Israeli troops still have a lot of fighting to do in the in the center and in the north of Gaza. Just on uh, Wednesday, we heard about the single biggest loss of life of Israeli soldiers in one incident during the ground invasion, when nine soldiers were reportedly killed in a series of ambushes near the refugee camp of Shaja'i. So basically, this is... Uh, what, week nine of the war? In terms of the invasion, it would be something like six weeks. And you would expect by that time that the Israeli military that has been always highly praised would have at least gotten hold of, of the north of Gaza and they've been there for a long time. But obviously there's there's still middle a lot of resistance despite the fact that the IDF claims that Hamas is crumbling and that they are losing operational control. 
obviously there's still a lot of work for them to do. In broader terms, there's been a lot of discussion about where the war goes next from here, how long it's going to go on. There's been a talk, a lot of talk about the United States running out of patience for Israel. And just on Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made it clear that despite the fact that Washington is the main ally of Israel, supplies it with a significant amount of weaponry, Israel, quotes will go all the way in the war against Hamas, despite international pressure. Because this is what we've been seeing in recent days. There was a vote on Wednesday, I believe, on a non-binding resolution at, at the UN calling for a ceasefire. And Netanyahu made very clear on Wednesday night, as he put it, nothing will stop us. We will continue until the end. And this is also happening during a week when um, we're expecting UN National Security Advisor Jack Sullivan in town. Obviously, with the same mission, trying to see if Israel would be receptive to any calls to scale down fighting or at least wrap up the current high-intensity operation. But again, right now, we're not seeing much willingness on the part of Israel. In Gaza itself, the humanitarian situation is worsening. Just on Wednesday, the head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees warned that, quote, people of Gaza are running out of time, despite the fact that there's been a trickle of aid since the start of the ceasefire. We're hearing from anecdotal report, we're hearing from official health reports that Gaza is running out of medicines. It's, it's running out of the most basic things. I know people who recently told me that they're um, running out of insulin. They are diabetics. They have no place to get it from. There have also been reports about Gaza running out of vaccines for children, which also is, is a major issue. Also, the weather in the region is not making it easier. We had some heavy rains in Jerusalem, for example, on Tuesday and Wednesday, and the rain has since moved to, to Gaza, causing flooding in the areas that w- would be prone to flooding before. For example, in, in Jabali in the center and, and Rafah in the south, there were some quite miserable scenes. People living in tents, obviously, because they have nowhere else to live and they thought those places would be safe. Now those tent towns are being flooded. And just on Wednesday, we saw quite stunning footage of a young Palestinian man carrying a dead girl's body in the flooded refugee camp. At the same time, we're not hearing any credible reports that would suggest that Israel or Hamas are even willing to get back to a ceasefire, let alone agree on one. And just recently, I think it was on Wednesday, when we heard from Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh speaking about the post-war future for Gaza, definitely making it clear that Hamas is not leaving, and Israel's idea that it will be eliminated and definitely not taking any part in, in, in running the region after the war is an illusion, as he put it. He made it clear that Hamas is open to talks about ending ending the war, but he did not offer any deals about hostages. We still have about 135 Israeli hostages in Hamas captivity. And probably the the last thing I wanted to to bring up, I think it's quite significant and the news like that is very easy to drown in in all of the amounts of horrific reports we've we've had elsewhere. Just earlier this week, we saw the United States and Britain announce a series of sanctions, not only against Hamas officials, but also against Israeli settlers, which is actually a really big step. And if you look back, this can be the first time that Israeli nationals or any scale on a scale of, you know, a specific group 
like residents of uh, illegal settlements could be faced by international sanctions. And just on Thursday morning, we heard from Foreign Secretary David Cameron announcing sanctions on the on the British part, saying that he was banning those responsible for settler violence against Palestinians. Those people apparently are going to be banned from entering Britain. Natalia, it seems to me, listening to you you in Bethlehem, myself in London, like a pretty bleak picture. Bethlehem cancelling Christmas, the wars ongoing despite eroding support for Israel on the international stage. Is that ambiance of just trudging bleakness of the war continuing, no no end in sight. Is that something you feel in Israel as well? What's the mood on the street? It's very bleak. I don't think anyone has hopes for a lasting truce at this point. It would be very much interesting to see what, what comes out of, of Jake Sullivan's visit this week. And I think it's quite significant that Netanyahu made it clear that he's aware of the pressure from, from the US in particular, and he's not going to back down. But again, a lot... A lot right now depends on the United States and what steps they would be willing to take to try to to curb Israel's offensive in Gaza. Other than that, it's just I don't think right now it doesn't feel like there's a tangible prospect for a uh, ceasefire on the horizon. Natalia, before we go, it sounds like you're calling from a cafe or something. Where are you? What can you see? Can you describe the the scene to, to our listeners? Yeah, I was just trying to find a quiet place. And the problem with Bethlehem, like any part of the West Bank, is that uh, as soon as you cross into the West Bank, your um, phone and internet connection drops significantly. So you go from 5G to two bars on the phone, 4G, uh, if you're lucky, or, or 3G. So it's quite challenging to find a place with stable internet connection unless you have Wi-Fi. So I just took a break from our reporting and just around the corner from the Nativity Church, there is a hotel and restaurant called Casa Nova. I'm not sure they're referring to the Italian fictional character. But yeah, I would imagine this place would be bursting with visitors and pilgrims. Right now it's absolutely empty. I guess the, the, the sounds that you heard was the barman making coffee for the only four other people who are here right now, except except for us. So yeah, we're trying to keep people busy, at least by ordering tea, something like that. And Natalia, just looking ahead, um, what does your reporting look like over the next few weeks? Are you taking some time off? Um, will you be able to celebrate Christmas in, in, in Jerusalem? What, what, what does it look like for you? Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm finishing some Christmas reporting for a Christmas story, just like the one I mentioned about Bethlehem and how people in Bethlehem are affected by the war. It's not just the mood that changed that people don't feel like celebrating. The local economy is struggling. The city used to rely on visitors and tourists. There are absolutely none. So you're talking about shops and uh, restaurants not getting any patrons and obviously no uh, no income flow. Um, at the same time, Israel still has not reopened the internal border for West Bank residents to enter Israel. So those people who would live in Bethlehem and places like that and commute to work in Israel, they're not able to go to work and obviously losing a lot of income. I think this is also an important story to be told. And yeah, I'm um, I'm staying put here for Christmas and leaving shortly after that for, for a bit of a break for New Year's and the Russian Orthodox Christmas, which is the moment when I get to celebrate it. Very good. Natalia Vasilieva, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. On Thursday, I also spoke to senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan. Sophia recently published a deep dive on Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister. I wanted to understand how Netanyahu is perceived in Israel 
what his future may look like, and how he's fighting back against his critics. Sophia Yan, could you give us, before we get into questions about Benjamin Netanyahu's position right now in December 2023, could you give us a quick portrait of the man? What do our listeners need to know? So Benjamin Netanyahu has been prime minister in total for 16 years in Israel. He's got lots of ambition to stay on in power for a lot longer than that. And his first term actually began in 1996. So kids that were born that year, that Netanyahu first came into power, they are now 27. They're probably having kids of their own. So we're talking a very, very prominent figure, somebody who's been around in Israeli politics for a long time. People remember his name. They know his voice. He's someone who's who's been really pretty constant when it comes to government and politics here. He's now 74, and he's really been able to stay on top by playing the political game. He has forged a coalition that is here considered to be pretty right. There's some sense that maybe he's put his own political fortune above the greater good of the country. And so this is something that has really uh, been an issue. And actually, he wasn't so popular most of this year. Until the the war broke out and the Hamas attack occurred on the 7th of October, there were tons of Israelis out in the streets in these mass protests. They were very upset with Netanyahu, with this proposed judicial reforms. Uh, A lot of people felt like they were too anti-democratic, giving the government way too much power over the Supreme Court. And so people were out in the streets protesting against the government. So this was the environment in the country before war broke out. And so Netanyahu is, is really a polarizing figure himself. Thank you so much for that quick portrait, Sophia. Let's bring us up to date then. Can you tell us about what Netanyahu has been doing since war broke out? Netanyahu has been very clear from the very beginning of war that there was really one goal, and that is to eradicate Hamas. He does talk about bringing back hostages. But through all of this, the the one major through line that you hear from him over and over again is that this war is happening, that the military operations are going ahead, that they're going to do whatever it takes to erase this group that perpetrated those attacks. He's been very, very clear about that. I, I mean, almost every time he does give remarks to the press or in any sort of public setting since the 7th, this is what he's saying. And how is that going down with the public? For most of the public, and and for a lot of the people that I've talked to, the idea of war is something that they welcome in the sense that there's a real fear. There was this pact that was broken with the public. Uh, We've talked about this before in the podcast. A lot of Israelis have said this to me since I've been here, that, you know, there was always this agreement to the government, to the military, you protect us, you give us that feeling of security, and we give you our kids, we give you our sons and daughters to join and to fight in the military, to be to be trained in the military for emergency scenarios. But the sense is kind of that something like the 7th should never have happened. And a lot of the public are really worried about something like this happening again. And so they are, to a certain extent, in support of what the Israeli military is doing for the war, because they, they don't want to see a group like Hamas hurt the country like that again. And this is a, a very complicated scenario. The civilian death toll in Gaza, as many humanitarian organizations, also the UN, have warned, is ticking up very quickly. We're at more than 18,000 now. I think this morning it was 18,600. That's a lot of people who have died in a very short time in Gaza. Uh, and so it's a very difficult situation. But you have to think about for the Israelis, 
this country was built on this idea that they would always be secure, that the government, the military was going to be there, the Iron Dome, you know, these these big things with the defense complex here. This was meant to be something that should never have happened. And so there's a very big sense with the public that an attack like what happened on the 7th can never happen again. And in that sense, many people do feel that what Netanyahu is doing, this idea to erase Hamas, to make Hamas disappear, this is something that really needs to happen. I went to a central market in Jerusalem and I talked to a fruit vendor, Avram Levy. He's 73 years old. He was in the military himself. He's fought also in, in various conflicts. He has a son who's in right now serving, a son who's a professional soldier. And he said to me, quote, if there is one Hamas guy without legs and without a right arm, but with his left hand makes a victory sign, we lost. So this is a sentiment that you can't discount with the, the general Israeli public here, the sense that they, they don't feel safe because of what happened. And so there's a question of how they get back to that. And for some, and from what Netanyahu's been saying all this time, is that first they need to deal with Hamas and that that would help get the country back to a more stable and secure or a sense of more stability and security. Sophia, what's your sense of how much, or well, to what extent Israelis blame Netanyahu personally for October the 7th? And to what extent it's, they, they blame the, the government as a whole? So this is the really interesting sentiment. Most people have a sense that he is absolutely to blame. This happened on his watch, this attack. And there is a sense that he was so busy trying to play the political game to stay in power that he sacrificed good governance of the country, that he sacrificed on the security front, that something went wrong because he was so busy trying to be number one, to stay prime minister. And he's been through a lot of political ups and downs. I spoke before about these protests that were happening in Israel all this year until war broke out. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with Netanyahu and his leadership. And given this war, definitely people generally have a sense that this is it. You know, he's going to be gone. He can't stay in power any longer. He's probably not the best guy to lead the country. But there's also a sense that actually maybe this isn't the right time to be having that discussion. There are some people who are very upset and would like to see him gone tomorrow and have somebody else in charge of what happens next in terms of running the country, running the war. But the overarching sentiment that I hear from almost everyone is that, you know, he's got to go, but this isn't the moment because the country is in a national emergency, that they need to get through this crisis period before they can make a change in government. Because how can you how can you sort of have a ship without somebody steering it, even if it's for a second and you put someone in charge? You know, there's a sense that this isn't the right moment to be making a big change in government like that. Did you manage to speak to people who, who also supported him? And if so, what did they say? Yeah, there are still people who support him, who support his party, the Likud party. But even they say, you know, maybe if it turns out that he is responsible in, in the inquiries that will happen once things calm down, if it turns out that there really was something that he did that is at fault and, and led to this situation, that this horrible thing that we all experienced, even his greatest supporters have said to me that that would change how they feel about him. But again, right now, there's a big sentiment that this isn't the right moment to be thinking that way. On the other side of this are, are families who were living in the communities around the Gaza Strip. These were the most hurt communities, you could say, I, I mean, because they were so close to Gaza when the Hamas militants came and broke down the defenses from Gaza into Israel. They reached these communities first. In, in one kibbutz, for instance, they lost 10% of their residents. 
and more were taken hostage. And so for these families, it's been really very difficult trying to balance how they feel. There's a sense that Netanyahu didn't do his job. There's also worry that as war goes on, their loved ones who are still being held hostage aren't going to be saved. What if they're killed by accident in an Israeli airstrike? And this has, this has been a worry for quite some time since the beginning. And some of these families are really upset. One woman I talked to, she has a sister and a brother-in-law, both of whom were taken hostage. Her sister was released during the temporary truce. Her brother-in-law, though, remains in captivity. And so she's really upset. She said to me, I wanted him gone before. Now I want him gone even more. She's like, you know what? <laughs> I didn't like him before. And then he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And time for him to, to go. And she thinks it's fine for the government to have a change in leadership, even in this moment of emergency, this moment where the country is embroiled in war. Sophia, do, do ordinary Israelis bring this up with you when you're talking to them about the future of Netanyahu, their views on the prime minister? Is this something you, you sort of have to ask about? You know, it's really interesting. If you walk around the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, you see a lot of graffiti, actually, on the streets. People taking markers to signs on the street. Fuck Bibi. It's a sentiment that it seems a lot of people share. And the war, the fact that the seventh happened, that these attacks from Hamas happened and that the war was the result, has really upset a lot of people, even for some of Netanyahu's long-term supporters. The fact that this happened was enough for them to stop supporting him. Because again, it's something that most people here feel never should have happened. And somehow, something, somewhere along the way, fell apart. And there's a sense that that's why, that the government didn't do its job and that's why we're in this situation now. This is what a lot of Israelis have said. Has Netanyahu said anything himself about his own future? Do, you get, do we get a sense of what he wants? And linked to that, what do you think happens now? A lot of Netanyahu's public remarks since war broke out have been really very strong. He's been careful to use certain words to try to give this image of being in control. The only problem is it doesn't really seem like it's working. The public hasn't necessarily rallied around him. They've rallied around the idea that Israel needs to be united, that they have to find a way to respond to the trauma, to the hurt, to the attacks of the sevens, also to find a way to respond to this challenge of Hamas. And then further down the line, what happens to Gaza? These are questions that a lot of people are, are unified in the sense uh, of asking and talking about and discussing. But the general public doesn't seem to have really rallied around Netanyahu. And it's a big contrast to what you saw, for instance, in Ukraine with Zelensky, where he did emerge as a very strong national figure. Netanyahu, though he was a controversial figure before this war broke out, and he just doesn't seem to have this sort of star power right now still. Of course, he still has his supporters. He has naysayers. I mean, this is the game, right? This is the political game. But somehow he just hasn't really quite emerged as this very unifying, strong figure for the country because there's just so much, so much disappointment with the fact that the attacks happened. It goes back to that one point that the whole country was so badly hurt because the government failed. And who's in charge of that? Netanyahu. So this is the thing that comes up a lot, a challenge really for him in terms of his political future. And so for now, it seems like he really wants to push forward with this war to eradicate Hamas, as he said many times. He's used different words, eradicate, erase, this kind of stuff. And maybe... For him, you know, I, I haven't interviewed him. I've requested to interview him, but we have not been uh, given the green light on that. 
So I can't really speak to what's inside his head. Perhaps his closest advisors, maybe they don't necessarily know either. So I don't want to speculate so much, but looking at the situation, maybe his sense is that if he can find a way to call all of this a win, that if he can somehow emerge successful from whatever happens next, that maybe that would give him some more political lifeline. Well, we really hope you get that interview, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Just over a month ago, former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish Bratton Gordon shared his thoughts on the challenges and issues facing the IDF as they prepared to launch an armoured assault into Gaza. I caught up with him to hear his thoughts on their progression and tactics from a military perspective after weeks of heavy fighting. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, thank you so much for coming into the studio. It's really good to see you in person again. We spoke a little more than a month ago ahead of Israel's ground invasion of Gaza. You gave us your thoughts on what we might expect to see, some of the challenges the IDF may come up against. Could you talk us through what you think you've seen over the past month from the Israeli army? Well, yes, it's great to be back and talking about this very difficult subject. I think everybody has been very focused on what's happening. The level of scrutiny of the Israeli ground campaign into Gaza is is something that I, I think has never been seen before. I know that the main focus, of course, as it should be, is on civilian casualties and preventing them. We understand, I think the last figures were about 18,000 civilian casualties, and we understand about 100 Israeli soldiers have been killed. Now, this figure is on civilian casualties very high, but the Israelis will point out that it is about 25% of what the coalition forces inflicted in Mosul and Raqqa three or four years ago. So it is a very precise war that the Israelis are trying to fight, but they, they're using everything. I've been very surprised to see tanks in so much evidence around the various cities in Gaza. You know, a tank punches a, a heck of a weight with its 120 millimeter gun. To use the tank as a sniper, as it were, is what the Israelis are doing, is, is slightly new to me and my experience of tank warfare, but we have seen it in Ukraine used very effectively. And when you have a drone tethered at the sort of target end, then that seems to be viable. It looks also, looking at the tanks, Israelis have learned a lot from Ukraine and we're seeing drone cages on top of them to prevent them being hit from above. I think also, you know, what has been staggering is the what we call the air warfare. You know, that the, the tens of thousands of airstrikes that are happening on a weekly basis is is just phenomenal. When you think how small Gaza is, and, and presumably it's a lot of these airstrikes that are actually creating the civilian casualties with, with the terrorist Hamas fighting amongst the population makes it hugely uh, challenging. I think what I have been, if the Israeli figures are right and about 7,000 Hamas fighters have been killed, that is... Yeah, that's a bit of a surprise. We thought Hamas were highly trained by the Iranians and also by the Russians, the Wagner Group, but they are dying in their thousands. What we haven't seen, and we think it's going on, is the fight underground, which will be most horrific. And presumably that is where the hostages are still being held. When it comes to the way that the Israelis have gone about it, and they're getting criticised every day for moving civilians around. But it, it strikes me with my military head on 
that that is really the only way you can do it to to try and prevent casualties and trying to keep these people fed and safe and and the medical system running is hugely challenging. But I think the Israelis are making progress. How long it's going to take for them to finish it off? They were only just saying this is not a long game. One would like to see more of the aid coming in. I know that there is a British flotilla. Hopefully we'll put aid on the beaches. And there are several hospital ships just off the coast of Gaza, which can be used as well. But um, yes, the most complex, the most difficult fighting under the most severe scrutiny that I've seen in my military career. There's quite a lot to pick up there, Hamish. Just on the tanks point, you mentioned, we talked about how the Israelis are using tanks as almost like a sniper rifle. Could you just explain what exactly do you mean? And why do you think they're doing this? Well, I think uh, the, the, the idea of sniping, traditional tank warfare, you know, my experience in the first Gulf War, I was in a squadron of 14 tanks steaming across the desert, using speed of maneuver and the firepower to overwhelm Iraqi positions and destroy Iraqi tanks. Now, we're in a very different environment here. This is built up. You know, Gaza, to me, is a bit like London. It's that sort of density of people. So, you know, you can only move a tank relatively slowly. Its weapon, its main weapon, this 120-millimeter gun, fires very accurately out to about three kilometers. So, in theory, you can put a very powerful shell through a window three kilometers away. And if that's where the terrorists are and you've identified it with a drone or other means, then that strikes me as a very good way of doing things. The other thing, of course, is that the people in the tank are protected. The tank will take any sort of small arms or even anti-tank guided weapons or, or missiles fired at it. So it is safer almost to be in a tank doing the sniping role. And the Israeli tanks also have a very heavy machine gun, a 50 cal machine gun, which you know, accurate out to about 750 meters that can be used as well. So, yeah, we've seen a little bit of this in Ukraine, but in the very built up areas of Gaza strikes me as being a, the right way to use the armor. I know this is a very speculative question, really. I mean, you've touched on it earlier, but my understanding is that Hamas have not fought as well as one would have expected, given, as you mentioned, their training, given everything else. Are you aware of any theories? Again, I know this is highly speculative, but what do you think might be behind this? You you said 7,000 casualties. That's a huge, huge number. I think Hamas are terrorists. Terrorists generally fight in ones and twos, and it's all about catching people unawares, blowing them up with roadside bombs, shooting in the back of the head. Uh, And I think the Israelis have been very smart in the way they've approached this. I think the Israelis have overwhelmed them with combat power and they do not have the ability to fight as formed units, if you like. So, you know, there's no indication that 10 or 20 Hamas fighters have got together to try and attack an Israeli tank squadron or or infantry squadron. So I, I expect that's where they've been undone. But you could only do it with overwhelming capability. I sort of think back to my time with the Peshmerga in Mosul where... We didn't have that amount of combat power available. And it's not just the tanks and the infantrymen on the ground. They've got air superiority. They've got intelligence. So you put all that together, and I think it's overwhelmed Hamas, which is why I think the Israelis are confident they will be able to neutralize Hamas. But it's whether, you know, the Americans and the others allow them, that's the wrong word, to to carry on with the, the amount of casualties that we're seeing from the Palestinian civilians. 
you started off by saying how, in your view, this war has received more scrutiny than any other war that you've been a part of or, or seen. Can I ask, what is that experience like when you have that kind of scrutiny on your actions? And how did that change how you approached things that you were involved in? It'd be good to sort of take us into the mind a bit of what it's like as a soldier to know that lots of people are watching. It's it's horrific. I mean, fighting is the most unnatural thing that anybody does anyway. And, you know, most of my experience, first Gulf War in places like Bosnia and Kosovo and Afghanistan, you know, a lot of it, you don't have that scrutiny. You know, we in the British military, we're trained on the on the rules of war, the right thing to do and all the rest of it. And, and we like to think that, you know, we, we always take the moral high ground. So, you know, my own experience, one would do nothing to get civilians involved or do nothing that, that is not right. But but with the scrutiny, with the world's press, I mean, everything is is focused on that. And I think it must be incredibly difficult for, for the Israelis. I expect the Israelis are, have been used to fighting Hamas and Hezbollah for the last, you know, 50 years or so. So they know they know their enemy. And, you, you know, they, they know that scrutiny involved. But I think it's very difficult for, for those of us who, who, you know, don't live in the region, haven't fought in the war, and do not have the background that Israeli state has to, to see that, you know, that this is a, a fight like nothing I've experienced. But incredibly difficult, I think, for for the soldiers. But I expect they're driven on by the fact that they probably know a hostage or they know somebody who knows a hostage. And that ultimately is what they're trying to do is recover the hostages, number one, and neutralise Hamas, number two. But yeah, undoubtedly, when this is over, there, there will be, you know, recriminations and there will be horrific stories. But as I said, fighting in a war and fighting like this is the most unnatural and unpleasant thing to do. But, you know, if you think you're following the right moral path, you get on and do it. Final question on this, I think. We've spoken about the last month and what you've seen, what's different to what we may have expected. Again, a slightly speculative question, but what should our audience, what should our listeners be looking for over the next few weeks, few months? Where do we think this is actually going? Well, this is, of course, the great the great conundrum is, you know, how long will this go on? I think a few weeks ago, we thought it would go on for months and months. It would seem pretty clear that the Israelis are under considerable pressure from particularly the Americans to get this over uh, as quickly as possible. You know, apart from the horrendous level of civilian casualties, the destruction in Gaza is almost total. But there are still 2 million plus civilians living there. So it is pretty clear that if if there is to be any future, it, it has got to be over uh, quickly. I think we're reassured that Hamas are actually folding pretty quickly. No doubt there are negotiations going on. I think we discussed it a month ago. What I saw in Syria is taking some of the the combatants out and moving them to other parts. That might well happen. It would seem clear that a lot of the leadership in Hamas have also been neutralised. So, you know, I, I would have thought the Israelis believe they've got weeks left in this, not months. The intensity of the fight will no doubt continue. Uh, and we are now down in the southern area. So from a ground perspective, they would have seemed to have cleared quite a lot of Gaza. So I think everybody is hoping it will just be over, you know, as soon as at all possible. Hey, Mr. Bratton Gordon, thank you very much. Thank you. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.